This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today, you can hear Open Country. If I was to say kafili to you, I wonder what would spring to mind. I suspect not Britain's worst ever mining disaster, the loss of 440 lives in 1913. For this week's Open Country, you find me in the tiny Aber Valley in south-east Wales at a memorial for that disaster and for the many other disasters that cost men and boys their lives throughout the coal-producing history of the South Wales Valleys. And with me to tell me a little bit more about this area, we're standing at the site, the shafts of the pithead of the Universal Colliery where the disaster happened, which have now been taken away. And there is a, a memorial full of gravitas, actually, here on this exposed site. I can see tile after ceramic tile of names and ages. The youngest, 14, Charles Baker. Others, 37, 39, family groups all of them, evidence of a decimated village as a result of this disaster. And standing here with me, Jill Jones of the Aber Valley Heritage Group and Roy Noble, broadcaster. And Roy, a teacher here in Sengheneth for many, many years. Yes, I was a teacher here. Oddly enough, as fate would decree, when I was in college, I was invited up to play rugby for the village side a couple of times. Not very successfully. Then I came back as a teacher, and when they asked me to be a patron for the committee that was building a fund to have this memorial built, it was a great privilege because I qualified I suppose on three fronts. The rugby club, mostly the school, because I taught family members. And thirdly, because my own grandfather had been killed in a coal mine. And I remember the day they brought his body home, but could relate somehow to what happened here. You're talking hundreds here. It's absolutely shocking, the disaster itself, and I'll get you to tell me more about that in a second. But, Jill, give us a sense of this place, first of all. I mentioned Caerphilly. We're in the borough of Caerphilly County, aren't we, here in the Aber Valley? But this valley is tiny. Oh, yes, yes, it's just two small villages. We're approximately four miles from Caerphilly, and it was built on coal. There was nothing here until coal was discovered. Then Singenia just sprang up. And I guess, Roy, that's where we have sort of rurality meeting the beginnings of heavy industry and the Industrial Revolution as people came from all over Wales and elsewhere to start working in places like St Henneth. Well, it was a fine example of the melting pot that South Wales was and the Klondike, really, that these villages were as well. And it is very rural. I've just come over the top from the north down here. And, of course, going back over the centuries, it was called the park. It was owned by the knight that owned Caerphilly Castle. But coming forward a bit, in the 1880s, Cardiff town, it wasn't a city then, did consider this village as a possible reservoir to serve its needs. So coal was discovered. The geology, the history and the relationship between humans and the landscape here couldn't be more closely intertwined, really, Jill, could they, in terms of the way these villages developed? Well, most Welsh villages, actually, the houses are built on the side and the pit was at the bottom and it was the main part. But, of course, there was no roadway, I'm interesting, in. so the first thing that was built was, of course, the railway, and that brought in all the equipment and that's how people travelled up to St Genneth. Tell me about the disasters here, Roy, because the big one that I mentioned wasn't the first one here at Universal College, No, was no, it? the big one was 1913, but the first one... Well, the pit actually was sunk in 1891 
And in 1901, just 10 years later, the first disaster happened on May the 24th of 1901. And they were fortunate, if you can use such a word, in that it was just after the night shift had come up and gone home. There were only 82 men underground, 81 were killed. And one was saved because this horse was killed and fell on him. Obviously, there was a, an inquiry and recommendations were made. The phrase that comes out is, lessons will be learned. And, of course, lessons are not really ever learnt. And by 1911, a Mines Act had come out making these recommendations. The owners of the pit had asked for an extension. They were supposed to put these recommendations into place by January the 1st, 1913. They asked for an extension to September the 14th, 1913. But, of course, we passed that, and we got into October the 14th on the morning. And at 10 past 8 in the morning, there was a massive explosion, and this time... 439 men killed and one rescuer. Now, the explosion was so violent that the cage came up the shaft and decapitated the banksman. There were harrowing funerals here, lines of them, really. Now, the manager, Edward Shaw, he was indicted, I think, on 17 charges. He was found guilty on eight, and he was fined £24. The owner, Sir William Thomas Lewis, who was the first Lord Merthyr of St. Henry, he uh, was fined £10. So newspapers reported the fact that a miner's life it was five pence halfpenny under old money. That's what happened. There was such an outcry that the public opinion sought charity money coming in, and £126,000 was gathered then. And, and I guess what some of that illustrates, Jill, is how traumatic an event like that must have been for a small community like this. When we look at the small wall that we're standing in front of here and we look at the tops of these tiles and the names that just go on and on and on in a hexagon right around this memorial where we're standing, so many street names repeated, like scores of men and boys from every street in this village lost in one fell swoop. The trauma of that for a community is unthinkable, isn't it? It must have been beyond their reasoning to hear the pit hooter go and suddenly realise that there was a disaster. There's no way of communication, not like now, so they must have run down, which we know all this because we know from the records and they, they surrounded the pit with the thousands of people that travelled over from the other valleys and it must have been days and days before they knew exactly what was happening. The bodies were brought up one by one, those that they could get hold of, most of them died of burns and suffocation. So there were houses where all the male members of the household were gone in a flash, just like that? Yes. And they would have been the wage earners too. Exactly the implications right. for survival for the remaining women of the house were a big problem, hence the charity donations. Well, charity were the backbone. Otherwise, there was no social benefit of any kind. No money in compensation was coming to them at all. So it, they relied on charity money. And as we stand here now, we can hear the voices of children playing in the school behind us because right next door to the memorial now is the village primary school. Mm. And it really illustrates how this area must have changed, Roy, doesn't it? Because there's, there's no evidence, really, that mining took place here other than the memorial that we're standing in front of. No, that's right. In the trees there, that's where the Lancaster and York shafts were. This school is actually built on part of the site of the Universal Colliery in Anta Park. The school I worked in is on the hill and now it's been flattened, of course. And every year we have a memorial service and it's, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and everybody has a connection with it. Just like the Festival of Remembrance, mm -hmm. suddenly over the last couple of years, it's grown 
and people become more and more interested. So more and more people are coming back to this now. And they come here as a symbol because St. Henry is a symbol of the coal industry in Wales. It developed from being a St. Henry memorial into a national memorial for Wales. And of course, around the walkway here of the circle, are paviers we had made of all all the other disasters that happened in Wales. You know, there were Albion Colliery, Kilbundy with 290, Gresford in North Wales with 266, down to about 12 or 10 or whatever. I suppose the parallels between the recovery of the landscape from coal mining and heavy industry and the recovery of, of the people who live here is something you can draw a relationship to, isn't it? Because, you know, we've seen a lot of reclamation work in the last 50 years here in Wales and the legacy of heavy industry on the health of the population here in Wales is is also something that's a very, very big problem. Well, yes, it is. I mean, St Henry hasn't had, in its small valley yet, a country park developed. But this has been a kind of a thing that has developed in other areas. Where I live, for instance, in Aberdeen, there's Coombe. Now, Coombe had a couple of big mines. It was a dead-end mining valley with a, a hard rock quarry at the end of it. It was a glacial valley. But now, if you go there, there are two lakes and people walking. There's a centre. And, of course, young generations coming through now, one... They don't know what coal was, and two, what it was for. And when they look at these parks, of course, we've moved on. So it's all gone back to rurality. You just cannot imagine how some of the valleys were. Roy Noble, Jill Jones, thank you so much. We're going to come back here later, and I know you're going to join us then, so thank you for that. But for now, really standing here, and we've been discussing really the way the rurality that surrounds us, we're in a dip here, surrounded by the high ridges of the ancient farmland, and really it is reclaiming this area. There's no hint here that there could ever have been a colliery that would have required 900 men on one shift to shift coal. The rurality really is reclaiming this, and other than this memorial, you would never know that the colliery would have existed. And that's true of so many mining areas in the South Wales Valleys. So we're going to head to another of those areas now. We're heading to another tiny valley in Caffili County Borough, just a few miles north to Parkcombe Darren, where reclamation work has been undertaken, and we're going to find out exactly how it was approached. I've travelled north of the Aber Valley now and I'm in the floor of the Darren Valley and I am in a beautiful country park. The valley sides slope up gently, they're covered in deciduous and conifer woodland and it's gentle here. Behind me there's a lake with reed beds and the taller reeds are, are blowing fairly gently. The winds have been high today but fortunately they've calmed down a little bit for my visit to the Cumdaran Park. And with me are the park manager, Pete Lewis, and local ecologist Margaret Isles. And Margaret, the village of Derry, which is very near here, you're a native to Derry, aren't you? So this am, is right yes. on your doorstep. This is, uh, this is my local patch. I'm very lucky, as you can see. And you're going to tell me a little bit about the ecology of the area and, and what's been done for that in a second, I know. But Pete, maybe you could start by filling me in on the, the reclamation of this land, because this valley floor was the site of a colliery, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Up until 1975, it was still an active colliery. So between 1978 and 1980, there was a massive amount of work reclaiming the old colliery site into a, a country park like you see today. It's hard to believe there was ever a colliery here. You know, the, the amount of infrastructure that would have been necessary, you know, the slag heaps and all that sort of stuff. You just wouldn't guess that any of that was ever here. No, it, it took a lot of, lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort 
to create the scheme and it completely transformed it. And people even say today that they struggle to believe it was a colliery site, which is a good thing. But on the other side, it is difficult to try and interpret the site and, and look back at the history where it was an industrial site. Yeah, and Margaret then, let's start with the sloping hills here that are now covered in woodland, because obviously they didn't always look like that. Tell me what happened yeah, originally there. the steep slopes were the, the tips where they put all the, the waste from the colliery up on the, the top there. When they turned it from colliery to country park, the big concern was that the tip would start to move. So a decision was made to um, stabilise the tips as soon as they took the site over. And that's how we've got all the plantations of the larch and the spruce. But then there's also the lower section of the native broadleaf trees as well. So there's, there's quite a mix. But they were all put in to um, stabilise the tip. And they had to go for species that could tolerate the low nutrient levels because the ground on the tip was waste from the colliery. So it was very poor. So certain species wouldn't have taken on there. So they've gone for species that thrive in poor soils. And it looks... Fantastic, actually, doesn't it? Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's been done very well. What about the rest of the ecology on the site? How has that been cultivated and, and what's the health of it? Originally, the site was very black when it was first taken over. I can remember when the lake was first put in and all the land around the lake wasn't green as you see it now. It was very black with the odd little blade of grass trying to come through. I can remember as a child before they, they seeded everything that they had lorries and lorries of chicken manure coming in and they were spreading it on the site before they put the seed on. And um, I can remember the one school holidays where they really went to town with the fertiliser. I can remember the old girl who lived next door to my mum and dad complaining that every time she put the washing out, it would come in smelling of chicken manure, <laughs> so she wasn't very impressed. There were a few people who complained if the wind was blowing the right way, it was very fresh smelling. <laughs> yes, very uh, <laughs> fragrant, or perhaps yes, not. <laughs> but um, it, it didn't last long. And um, as you can see, it, if it wasn't for the fertiliser coming in, this site wouldn't look half as good as it does it's, today. It's fascinating to me that you've seen it at sort of at both ends, as it were. When you were a child watching this happening, could you have ever imagined that it would have ended up looking like this? No. Um, I spent a lot of time up there as a child. My mum would fetch me up after school most evenings on my bike or walking, or my dad would fetch me up. And it was quite funny because the joke in the house was my dad used to work in Ogilvy Colliery, so the joke was he trashed the site and I was putting it back. <laughs> so we were always it was always a joke that he was the one who caused the damage and I was the one who was repairing the damage. It was very different, but it looked great then. I can remember the lake being put in and thinking, wow, this looks great. But it's, it's not a patch on, on how it looks today. All the habitats are still here, but everything has matured since they were put in. And that's it's when the habitats mature, that's when the wildlife are drawn in. So it's, it's become a real wildlife haven over the, the last couple of years. Pete, a real sense from Margaret there of the level of work that went into all of this. What does it mean for visitors to the park today, do you think, to, to come and see it? And, and how do you explain to them the, the history of, of what used to be here? Just to put things in perspective, after the colliery closed in about 1975-1976, we had a Doctor Who episode up here, which was Doctor Who and the Green Death. And the main focus was they wanted a, a lunar-type Martian landscape that was heavily contaminated and polluted. And we had these giant toxic slugs coming out of the earth here. 
So all of a sudden, fast forward 35 years, we haven't got that landscape anymore. We've got this wonderful country park, which is here for all of the local people to come and enjoy. What a great story that is. And you're right, that really highlights the transformation that, that we've seen here. How did people go about combating things like the pollution and the desperation and that sort of thing? Was that a difficult process? It is a difficult process. We were lucky up here we didn't have too much contamination from the old industry. So that wasn't a big issue. The two things that we did have, as Margaret touched upon, one was lack of nutrients and the other was compaction by heavy machinery and things. So what we did up here in areas where the tree planting has is, is been taking place, you loosen all the soil, you rip the soil to get rid of that compaction issue and then we incorporate various fertilisers then to put the nutrients in. What we also do is plant things like alders which are nitrogen fixing so they absorb nitrogen from the atmosphere and then put it into the soil so over a period of time once the soil becomes fertile you can start taking those trees out and prioritize more oaks and birch trees like that you would naturally find in the area is everything thriving margaret i mean we've talked a lot about the the landscaping and the practicalities of that in terms of picking the types of trees that can cope with the challenges of this area what about everything else i mean what's here and how do they cope are they challenged at all by what used to be here they probably were in the, the early years because it took a while for the river to change from running black to, to clear. I'd say it took quite a while for the vegetation to establish, but once the, the habitats had started to um, establish, the wildlife was just drawn in by the, the drastic changes that the, the valley offered. So all of this was done some time ago now, late 70s, early 80s. How does the approach that was taken here maybe differ from a more modern reclamation project? It's mainly money these days. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, it was a high priority developed tips and things. Local authorities had a little bit more money to play with. These days, everything's tighter. Welsh government hasn't got the money. The local authorities haven't got the money. You've got to damage the environment to improve the environment, if you like. So we've got a new site down at Panalt. As I say new, it's, it's about 15 years old. And we took a very different approach to that one. Park on Van is 35 years old. So we are changing and evolving how we develop these sites. Well, I know that we're going to go down there now and take a look at that and find out a little bit more about the more modern approach to all of this. But thanks very much indeed, Pete, for, for telling me about this. And Thank you very much. Margaret, just one more thought from you, because you've got such a close familial connection with all of this, with your dad working at the colliery and then you working here now in, in the park. What did your dad make of it when he came and saw how it had all changed after the reclamation? Even though he worked here, when he came up afterwards, he, even today he stands up here and he says... The same as what everybody says, it's hard to believe that I used to work underground down there. He finds it easier because he knew the site as it was before. He knows where to look for the little features, so he knows where the gantry would have been and he knows where the washroom would have been. And So he's still familiar with the site, but he said it does still takes his breath away knowing what was here before. And then to look at it today, he said that you would never believe. Well, it's been a real pleasure to see it, Margaret. Thanks very much indeed, thank and Pete, thank you too. Thank you. Well, I've dropped into my third valley on uh, this open country in Caerphilly County Borough. We're in the Frumney Valley now, in Park Penafta. Now, interestingly, this reclamation site is a much more recent one than Park Comdaran because the colliery here only closed in 1991. And standing here, you can see much more clearly what this area used to be. With me is Simon Greenfield, the park manager, and Heaven David, a local councillor for the area. And uh, Simon, as we stand 
stand here on an upper ridge in the wind, which uh, the, the fairly hefty wind. Uh, thank you for withstanding it with us. You can see actually with some of the landscaping where the weather's worn off some of the grass, you can see the dark soil and uh, coal dust underneath. It's much easier to tell that this used to be a colliery, isn't it? You're right, but the actual hooves you're looking at and just mentioned were actually intentionally left black to highlight them as hooves. You mentioned hooves, and I should just explain why, because we are uh, standing here on an earth sculpture of Sultan the Pit Pony, uh, who is a magnificent creature, Sultan. When you look at the aerial pictures of him, he's in full gallop, his mane and his tail blowing in today's very high breeze, and his ear, in fact, which is a wire construction, is just sort of rising in the background into the very wintry sky. This is very much, then, about reminding people of the heritage of this place, is it? It certainly is. Sultan is 200 metres long by 15 metres high, although a lot of people actually don't notice him when they first come to the park. When they actually do point out to him, he is quite an awe-inspiring sight, although best probably seen from, from a helicopter, really, to get the best view. <laughs> I, I don't want to be sort of over-sentimental about it, but there's almost a sense of Sultan sort of rising out of the earth, isn't it? You know, that so much of this area was shaped by what went on under our feet, underneath the earth, and Sultan seems to be rising up out of that and, and reminding us about that. He is, yes, because he's located on a flat area of the park, the plateau area, as we call it. We're actually standing on Sultan now, but underneath us there's probably something like 50 metres of coal spoil. And just talk me through the difference in approach when you're reclaiming an area like this for the millennium as opposed to, say, Padkamdaran, where I've just come from, where you would really have no idea unless somebody told you that that is an old colliery site. You're right, um, obviously, as, as the techniques have developed in land reclamation over the years, people learn the lessons of previous reclamations, I think here, though, when we look at the trees, and 135,000 trees were planted on this site, you do are now starting to lose that feeling of it being a coal tit. Absolutely. I mean, Heaven, what are your thoughts on the importance of reminding people, despite the fact that they now have this lovely place to come and enjoy, that the heritage of this is one of coal mining? Yeah, I, th I think it's hugely important that we develop land like this and it isn't left uh, a mess. You don't have to dig very deep to see the coal shale underneath the grass. But from a, a, an historical point of view, we're very proud of the fact that our fathers and our grandfathers worked in the pit. And we need to remember that through the landscape. And that's what we've done here. We're remembering it through the landscape, but also looking to the future and saying that past that they built for us, we're building on it and we're improving it and developing it and, and really building a greener future for the, for the South Wales Valleys. And I suppose in that respect, you know, the, the scars on the land and the costs, the human costs of the mining industry, yeah. they run in parallel, don't yeah, they, in this area? Absolutely. And you've seen in St. Henry the memorial of tragedies past. Here you've got a memorial of something that was a lot more positive, the pit pony, but also remembering that those were working pits, those were working mines. And now you've got a, a beautiful green area for people to enjoy. And if uh, you needed any more evidence that uh, the people who worked here were hardy souls, then uh, what the weather is throwing at us right now is certainly part of that. The rain has turned into hail. Uh, the wind, if anything, is getting even stronger. So I think I'm going to have to wimp out now, say goodbye to Sultan and head back down that ridge. Come on, let's go. <laughs> 
I've returned to the mining memorial here in Sanghenez and I've seen as I've travelled around some of these valleys in Kafili Borough, you know, the land has been decontaminated, the slag heaps have been landscaped, the pit shafts, they've been capped. But the scars of the mining industry were borne also, not just by the landscape, but by the people that it drew here to live. And it's memorials like this that are trying to keep those memories alive now that the industry itself has gone. Nothing does that, I think, more effectively than the ceramic tiles that you have here of the names of those who were killed in, in the mining disaster here at Universal Colliery. And Roy Noble, there are hundreds and hundreds of names to pick out here, but which are the ones that stand out for you? William Uphill is aged 15 here. Arthur Vranch is 19. Ernest Vranch, he's 21. Uh, as William Warden is 22. Frederick Waters, 20. There are some which are relatively older. Gilbert Whitcomb who's 37, from the Universal Huts. John White from Grove Terrace, he's 33. William White, Caffilly Road, and he's 24. And uh, David Williams, aged 53, of Park Terrace, St. Henneth. And you could go around this wall and see family connections everywhere.